Hello and welcome to Contemplations and today we are going to be talking about cults. Um, specifically I've picked two, the cargo cult which I find really quite interesting as they're quite atypical of what we consider a cult in the western world and also the Osho uh, cult which some might describe as not being a cult but I thought it was interesting because I found, found the individual in question quite interesting. He had interesting ideas. It's not just um, these people are crazy, there's actually a bit of nuance going on. And so I picked pretty much the two that I found most interesting, but we will make mention to some other cults as well. Um, but first of all, it's worth mentioning, I'm joined by Bodade and Stelios. Hello. So they're going to be offering their historic and philosophical perspectives respectively. And of course, I'll be breaking things down towards the end in terms of the psychology. And I'm particularly going to be talking about cult psychologists who... Um, I actually really hate, to be honest. I think they're utter scumbags and I'll be talking about why that is soon enough. But um, let's talk about the cargo cult. So here we have um, a couple of gentlemen uh, from a Melanesian island and this is known as the John Frum cult. And uh, as you can see, they're wearing um, US military uniforms, various military uniforms. They've got um, bits of bamboo, maybe wood, that have been fashioned to look a bit like a spear, perhaps. Uh, it looks a bit harpoony at the end there. Yeah, they're going to chase Moby Dick. Yeah, it, it may well do. Um, and what they do with those sticks is they imitate the US military marching. And so on John Froome Day, they will hold their mock rifles and walk around in their military uniforms, sort of imitating military drills. And um, here is a picture from the headquarters of a ship. And ships and airplanes in the John Froome cult are revered as vehicles um, from the, the plane of the ancestors. And we'll be talking about why they believe what they believe. Um, they believe they're they're somehow religious because they don't understand how these things can be created. And there are some more images as well. Here is a, a mock-up of a satellite dish. Um, this is, of course, made from sticks and straw. I wasn't able to source which of the cargo cults this was from or whether this is actually uh, a genuine image at all, but I've included it because it never fails to come up when people are talking about cargo cults. But it's the kind of thing that they did do. Um, and there is a, uh, a more sort of reasonable example here. This is mm. definitely one thing that they did. They made a runway and a high up platform and made a fake aeroplane um, out of sticks and it looks like leaves um, there. And they're all sat around the edges of the runway, seemingly waiting. And um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a, a sociological report from this article from the Scientific American. This was first published in 1959 and this was from Peter Worsley, um, I think his name is Worsley, I'm not entirely sure, um, who was a British sociologist and social anthropolog anthropologist even, um, who was also a university professor who went there, observed it and um, he was the, the person that actually coined the term third world. So he, you would imagine that he's quite influential for coining such a idiosyncratic word now. And yes, I think he epitomized um, 
exactly what the cults are about the best out of any description. And so rather than trying to put things in my own words, I'm just going to um, read what he wrote about them. And um, feel free to uh, interject if you have anything to say. But um, I do excuse reading a long passage. I won't be doing this for the rest of the contemplations. I feel like it's a little bit cheap, but it's only because I think it couldn't be put better um, than the terms I'm about to read. So he says, patrols of the Australian government venturing into the uncontrolled central highlands of New Guinea in 1946 found the primitive people there swept up in a wave of religious excitement. Prophecy was being fulfilled. The arrival of the whites was a sign that the end of the world was at hand. The natives proceeded to butcher um, all of their pig animals that were not only a principal source of substance, um, uh, subsistence, sorry, but also symbols of social status and ritual preeminence in their culture. Um, they killed these valued animals in expression of the belief in the uh, the three days of darkness, great pigs would appear from the sky. Food, firewood, and other necessities had been stockpiled to see the people through to the arrival of the great pigs. Mock wireless antenna of bamboo and rope had been erected to receive in advance the news of the millennium. Many um, believed um, that the great event would exchange their black skins for white ones, which I thought was interesting because the the, um, the sort of Mesoamerican peoples also believed that the white man turning up to their shores foretold some sort of end times, didn't they? Um, that's why Montezuma was so um, accommodating to Cortez because he thought that, well, here we are, we're in the, the end times. They, they are. And it, I think it's interesting that there are parallels here. And I, I, one has to wonder how these quite separate parts of the world, obviously Melanesia is relatively close to South America, but they they were last in contact with one another tens of thousands of years ago. So how on earth have these legends got similarities? It's, um, <clears throat> I think it's interesting to note, uh, I don't know if you're going to go on to explain this exactly, or this article mm -hmm. does, uh, this Peter Worsley, uh, but just to say there were lots of people in the Pacific Ocean, peoples in the Pacific Ocean and the, the, the South Seas uh, that were essentially untouched before World War II. It, it will go on to talk about that okay. sort of thing, but, but feel free to carry on. Also, anyway. just to say that it's really during World War II and immediately after World War II that, um, well, America mainly mm -hmm. was flying airplanes all over the Pacific to places that had really basically never, ever been touched by Western civ or any civilization. Mm -hmm. um, I think th their first contact was with the Dutch. Okay. Um, pre-World War II, but the, right. the main sort of involvement was with the Americans, hence the, the reverence in those images. And not just the Americans, sometimes it would be British or even mm -hmm. Australians. There, there were quite a few but, groups of people. They also had the Japanese as well. Right, right. Um, so there was a whole host of different nations and I think they struggled to keep track of who was who. So the broadest point I just wanted to make is that there's just lots and lots of these essentially untouched cultures in the Pacific, in and around the Pacific Basin, that were, well, yeah, as, as I say, untouched before World War II. Mm -hmm. And so when they come in contact with civilization, shall we say, um, it essentially blows their mind. And, um, and they think things like radar dishes and B-52s and individual army officers or, or the, the, the Duke of Edinburgh are gods on mm -hmm. some level or giant ships it's good that you mention the uh the tribe that um worships the duke of edinburgh 
um, the, the late Prince Philip, of course, um, because they're Melanesian as well. They're, they're sort of on the, a similar sort of archipelago of islands. And their reasoning was that Prince Philip came and visited them and then they had bountiful harvests for years to follow. And so they thought that the association between the auspicious visit of um, foreign royalty and their um, sudden abundance were, were linked in some way, which you can kind of understand if you don't have a proper understanding of the, the science of agriculture. I think it went back before that. I think it was that at some point in the 50s, there was some sort of downed aircraft or something, and there was a framed picture of the of uh, Prince Philip. Mm -hmm. And they just assumed that if this sort of, this God type craft had fallen out of the skies, out of the heavens, and the people on that, the godlike semi-divine people on that, if they worshipped this man, <laughs> then he must be the top god. He must be some sort of the leader of, of god type peoples. Yeah. So they worshipped him. And I think it was only mm. much later that the real Duke of Edinburgh himself visited the island at mm. a later date. Okay, that um, makes a lot more sense. Um, uh, yeah, well, anyway, it's sort of, for me, it's sort of sweet and pathetic at the same time. It's sort of, I completely understand why they might think that, mm. but it's also contemptible as well on some level. Uh, I don't want to be too harsh. But I, I, I don't of, find that same impulse in myself. I feel sorry for them, but also kind of not, um, it, uh, because there's lots of cultures, we were saying this before we came on, I was saying this in the office. Mm. There's lots of cultures, civilizations in the world, in throughout history that have come into contact with much more advanced peoples. They didn't necessarily just immediately assume they were gods or the things they made were gods. You don't start worshipping the example. I'd not seen it before where they, they built a mock-up radar dish, but I'd seen the one where they mocked up an aeroplane. Um, for example, when the, when the Spaniards and the Portuguese came into contact with the, the Aztecs or the Incas, um, they didn't necessarily think, they didn't worship galleons as gods. They didn't worship sort of... Um, uh, early muskets or blunderbusses as sort of divine creations or anything. But uh, I, I don't know, perhaps I'm being too harsh on it. Wouldn't you say that the Aztecs were way more developed than these uh, yeah. peoples? Yeah. Because yeah, it's not even close. The, the Aztecs, they had really sophisticated architecture. They also had, uh, you know, especially really weird temples and they were also known for several of their customs so it yeah. seems to me that uh, the, the comparison may not be a bit fair because mm -hmm. yeah I, yeah it's not fair to com compare these yeah. uh, pacific islanders the, yeah. the melanesians yeah. to sort of anyone else because they're no. so uh, what's the word without being too well, rude they're still living um, in the stone age as right, in, okay. at least at the time that this was written and that's not like me being facetious no, no, they no, were, it's, that a, it's, was it's the, an objective fact it yeah. is yeah. the actual right. technology they possessed right so it's not being disparaging. I know it's meant as a pejorative term these days, but it is it's a literal description of their technological advancement. Mm. So again, not to be rude, but quite literally, they're primitive. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, they're and, still living as hunter-gatherers, really, aren't they? And so, but also their thinking is primitive, uh, sort of extremely primitive. Uh, like like uh, what, yeah. what I mean is really childlike that you would yeah. because there'd be lots of primitive or ab yeah. aboriginal people that might not make that mm. leap of imagination to see a yeah. picture of the duke of edinburgh for example yeah. or just see a b52 in the sky and think it's yeah it's 
divine or godlike. That really is sort of that comes from the mind of a, a childlike yeah. mind. Not uh, all Aboriginals yeah. or primitive yeah. type peoples would necessarily make that jump. Yeah. I think. No, I was just wondering whether you you could say that instead of saying that it it is contemptible, we could say that something like you know that it's it's sort of uh, sad. Yeah. But on the other it hand, is, it yeah. is it's it's to be expected. It's totally mm. understandable yeah. because mm -hmm. imagine that you have never seen anything like that before, and you suddenly see, you know. Well, yeah, all you that could you could go technology. to like ancient Rome. And then you show them, I don't know, uh, an AR-15, <laughs> for example. You're, you're going to perhaps be seen as a human being. You're not going to be seen as divine, but you're obviously going to be recognized as far superior in terms of technology. And there would be a certain amount of reverence for you because of your connection to things. Mm. And therefore, they. And, and there's also the example of lot of societies who look at more technologically advanced societies, they, they think that, well, if there is some sort of um, divinity to this world, then they must be favored because they've been given um, material wealth that we can couldn't even imagine. And so mm. it, it makes sense that, that the outsiders who are more technologically advanced might be revered in a spiritual sense, I think. Contemptible is a bit strong. But what I mean by that, perhaps I should clarify that a bit, is that, okay, you, you first see, the first time you see, let's say, a B-52 in the sky for the first time, and your elders just declare it's, it's, it's a god, the plane itself is a god, or whatever, yeah. or you see a giant cargo ship, and uh, it, it's, it's divine, it's from the, it comes from the heavens, and the people on it are gods, okay, but then once you realise that it's not exactly that, like, for example, when the Duke of Edinburgh years later turns up, they still worship him as a god. There's like a film crew there. They've had, they've had a fair bit of interaction with um, the Western world, but they're still insisting that B-52s are the work of the gods and that the Duke of Edinburgh is a god. Okay, at that point for me, it becomes something approaching contemptible. Mm -hmm. Well... Um, even in 59, as we, we read on from this, mm, okay. they, they started to move away from it. And these days, although there are still some holdouts, they're mostly, they mostly have moved on from the cargo cults. I think understanding of how cargo works kind of helped talk people out of it. But mm. let's continue with what, what I was reading. So it goes on to say, this bizarre episode is by no means the single event of its kind in the murky history of the collision of European civilizations with indigenous cultures of the Southwest Pacific. For more than a hundred years, traders and missionaries have been reporting similar disturbances among the people of Melanesia. The group of, um, excuse me for using this outdated language, Negro inhabited islands, including New Guinea, Fiji, the Solomons and the New Hebrides lying between Australia and the open Pacific Ocean. Um, through their technology were based largely upon stone and wood. These people had highly developed cultures as measured by the standards of maritime and agricultural ingenuity. The complexity of their varied social organizations and the elaborate, elaboration sorry, of religious belief and ritual. They were nonetheless ill-prepared for the shock of the encounter with the whites, a people so radically different from themselves and so infinitely more powerful. The sudden transition from the society of the ceremonial stone axe to the society of sailing and ships and now of aeroplanes has not been easy to make. After four centuries of Western expansion, 
The densely populated central highlands of New Guinea remain one of the few regions where people still carry on their primitive existence in complete independence of the world outside. And that's still true today, actually. Um, Yet, as their agents of the Australian government penetrate into ever more remote mountain valleys, they find these backwards, um, backwaters, sorry, bit of a Freudian slip, <laughs> of antiquity already deeply disturbed by contact with the ideas and artifacts of European civilization. For cargo, pidgin English for trade goods, has long flowed along the indigenous canals of communication from the seacoast into the wilderness, with it travelled the frightening knowledge of the white man's magical powers. No small element in the white man's magic is the hopeful message sent abroad by his missionaries, the news that the Messiah will come and the present order of creation will end. So I'm going to carry on reading this a little bit more. The people of Central Highlands of New Guinea are only the latest to be gripped in the current religious frenzy of the cargo cults. However, variously embellished um, with the details of native myths and Christian beliefs, these cults all advance the same central theme. The world is about to end in a terrible cataclysm. Thereafter, God, the ancestors, or some local cultural hero will appear and inaugurate a blissful paradise on earth. Death, old age, illness, and evil will be unknown. The riches of the white man will accrue to the Melanesians. Although the news of such a movement in one area has doubtless often inspired similar movements in other areas, the evidence indicates that these cults have arisen independently in many places as parallel responses to the same enormous social stress and strain. Among the movements best known to um, students of Melanesia are the Tarot Cult of New Guinea, the uh, Valila Madness of Papua, the Naked Cult of Espirito Santo, and the John Frum Movement from the New Hebrides and the Taka Cult of the Fiji Islands. So yes, they all have their sort of individual um, cult movements, if you will, which is why I feel like they qualify as a cult and not some sort of weird um, sort of continent of religion, I suppose you could call it. All of Melanesia believing in the same thing. They had their own idiosyncratic beliefs. So at times the cults have been so well organized and fanatically persistent that they have brought the work of government to a standstill. The outbreaks have often taken authorities completely by surprise and have confronted them with maps mass opposition on a, of an alarming kind. In the 1930s, for example, villages in the vicinity of Wewak, New Guinea, were stirred by a succession of Black King movements. The prophets announced that the Europeans would soon leave the island, abandoning their property to the natives, and urged their followers to cease paying taxes since the government station was about to disappear into the sea in a great earthquake. To the tiny community of whites in charge of the region, such talk was dangerous. The authorities jailed the four prophets and exiled three others. In yet another movement that sprang up, um, declared opposition to the local Christian mission, the cult leader took Satan as his god. So, uh, any any comments yet, or shall I continue? Going oh, fine. Yeah. Sure. Troops on both sides of World War II found their arrival in Melanesia heralded as a sign of the apocalypse. The GIs who landed in the New Hebrides, moving up uh, the bloody fighting on Guandal Canal, um, found natives furiously at work preparing airfields, roads and docks for the magical ships and planes they believe were coming from Roosevelt, Roosevelt the friendly king of America. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's just that getting his name wrong, calling him a king is uh, <laughs> quite funny. Roosevelt. <laughs> I must say that you mentioned Guadalcanal. is one mm -hmm. of the biggest, depending on how you measure it, I think the biggest naval engagement of all time, or certainly among them. Mm -hmm. Depending on how you measure it, whether it's tonnage of ships or how much ammo was shot. Da, 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 da. Anyway, that would have been a spectacle to blow anyone's mind almost. Yeah. The Battle of Guadalcanal. Yeah. Like multiple, multiple battleships and cruisers and destroyers, uh, mainly American versus the Japanese. 
That's just the Japanese Imperial Navy. So <laughs> I can only imagine if some of the Melanesian tribesmen, indigenous tribes people, saw these giant battle fleets of World War II, uh, it would have been sort of very legitimately kind of awe-inspiring if you'd never yeah. seen anything other than your own, a little coracle yeah. that you've made of your own. And suddenly there's giant Japanese battleships with 18-inch guns. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, there's an issue of language because uh, it's difficult to conceptualize something you have never seen before. Mm, so they do right. need somehow to tailor their concepts to what they are experiencing. So perhaps that is mm -hmm. how they immediately went into deify everything <laughs> i'm pretty sure if i saw that battle it'd be like a life-changing experience yeah. in a sense yeah yeah oh yeah yeah so you can't really blame them can you? <laughs> in a sense so the japanese also encountered the millenarian visionaries during their southward march to guadalcanal indeed one of the strangest minor military um, actions of world war ii occurred in the dutch new guinea um, when japanese forces had to turn against the local papuan inhabitants of the Gilvink Bay region, the Japanese had at first been received with great joy, not because of um, their Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere propaganda had made any great impact upon the Papuans, but because their the natives regarded them as harbingers of the new world that was dawning. The right of the Dutch ha had already been given as the first sign. Um, Mansrin, creator of the islands, that and their people would now return, bringing with him the ancestral dead. All this had been known, the cult leaders had declared, um, to the crafty Dutch, who had torn out the first page of the Bible where these truths were inscribed. Um, when Mansrin returned, the existing world order would be entirely overturned. White men would turn black like Papuans. Papuans would become whites. Root crops would grow in trees and coconuts and fruits would grow like tubers. Some of the islanders um, now began to draw together into large towns, Others took biblical names such as Jericho and Galilee for their villages. Soon they adopted military uniforms and began drilling. The Japanese, by now highly unpopular, tried to disarm and disperse the Papuans. Um, resistance inevitably developed. The climax of this tragedy came when several canoe loads of fanatics sailed out to attack Japanese warships, believing themselves invulnerable by the virtue of holy water which they had sprinkled themselves. But the bullets of the Japanese did not turn to water and the attackers were mowed down by machine gun fire. So I find this development in the story rather interesting because they have their own sort of um, creation myth in a sense, um, which um, has, has some sort of parallels to the rest of the world in a sense. But um, it's interesting that they think that the Bible somehow contained a secret message just for them in the very first page that was torn out by the crafty Dutch and maybe the first page of the Bible because it had been a, a, a copy that had been traveling with the Dutch had a page missing. Hmm. Um, perhaps it was, you know, the the page in which it keeps the actual body of text um, sort of clean, if you will. You know how you get in books. But the notion that the Dutch had ripped it out to deprive them of it, as if the Dutch had gone out of their way to to take what was rightfully due to the Melanesians, mm -hmm. I think is a little bit convenient. I feel like there must be some sort of power play going on here whereby some sort of chief or elders are stratifying their position in the, their hierarchy by saying, these people have taken stuff from you, we need to take them back. And uh, we, we see that in even Western countries, don't we? That pe minority populations in, in the West are claiming that we somehow took stuff from them, when in reality, no, we created mm. it all ourselves, obviously. 
Yeah, we t- we took all of your your spears and your lack of wheels from you, did we? Yeah, we gave you endless amounts of things, if anything. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what I thought was interesting there is, um, obviously, when you have sort of man-made, it's just a, a concocted type of a theology or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously come out of the minds of men. I think that's um, part of the reason why I chose this in particular, because it's so obvious that this has a very human and material explanation. Mm. We know all of the factors involved here, don't we? Mm. We know that there's not a man called Mansarin who's going around creating Melanesians and pulling the islands out of the ocean. He's behind the New World Order. <laughs> He's actually uh, Klaus Schwab in a mask. Um, <laughs> but no, um, we know that the cargo and the ships, we know how they're made. We don't need divine explanations for this. And so it's a very good um, example of the actual mechanisms without having to take the the spiritual elements very seriously. Mm. There's two points I, I think are interesting and worth pointing out here is that one, obviously the Spanish and then the Portuguese, and then the Dutch, and then the British and the French, um, you know, went round the world, Magellan and then Drake and then everyone else went round the world, obviously in sort of the 16th century and by the 17th and 18th century, it was far from unheard of for Europeans to be going all the way around the world, to be crossing the Pacific. And yet, still in the era of World War II, the mid-20th century, there's still whole peoples that have never come into contact. So that, that's interesting to note, I think, how massive um, sort of the Pacific Basin is. Mm-hmm. And you can have, or Papua New Guinea, for example, is. You could still have people completely untouched. Um, that. And then the other thing I thought was really interesting that immediately sprung to my mind is there's some stories of when Drake, Sir Francis Drake, so in the Elizabethan age, um, in the 16th century, um, uh, I think on more than one occasion, but certainly on one sort of very famous, well-documented occasion, some um, indigenous peoples rode in their little canoes out to the Golden Hind and tried to attack it, (laughs) just like that. They, they didn't really assume Drake and his men shot one cannon sort of just over their heads to try and scare them off. And it didn't at all. And so then they blew them out of the water. They killed them. They, had, they felt they had no choice. Um, but the point is, is that um, a bit like Captain Cook, the death of Captain Cook, um, some of these indigenous peoples are sort of highly aggressive and dangerous. They, they will just see you as a, a threat, not necessarily. If they see you as a god or divine in some way, they might not necessarily immediately think you're benevolent mm. that you're actually a, d- a demon in some way something terrible and frightening and that you should probably be killed on sight um i know the north sentinelese have that sort of right. attitude yeah they'll try and shoot arrows at you straight away if you yeah. approach their island they weren't necessarily um, hostile at first either they became hostile with contact with the outside world but it's interesting that some of them even against uh, in world war ii era against japanese warships Mm-hmm. tried to row out to them to attack them. I mean, I mean it's with our sort of... Brave, if nothing else. I yeah, mean, I mean, a bit insane, but it, give, sure. give them at least mm. that it's brave. I mean, just the difference in scale of the ships alone. Yeah. They should have known right. better, I think. But yeah, yeah you can't <laughs> yeah. you can't call them cowards. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to carry on reading a bit more. There's not too much more, I don't think. Behind this incident lay a long history. As long ago as 1857, missionaries in the Gelvink Bay region had made note of the story of Mansarin. It is typical of many Melanesian myths that had become confounded with Christian doctrine to form the ideological basis of the movements. The legend tells of how long ago there lived an old man named uh, Manakamekari, 
he who itches in the, the native tongue, whose body was covered with sores, um, and Menachemekery um, was extremely fond of palm wine and used to climb a huge tree every day to tap the liquid from the flowers. He soon found that someone was getting there before him and removing the liquid. Eventually, he trapped the thief who turned out to be none other than the morning star. In return for his freedom, the star gave the old man a wand that would produce as much fish as he liked, a magic tree and a magic staff. And if he drew um, in the sand and stamped his foot, the drawing would become real. Um, Manakarakari, um, I'm going to get very tired of saying his name, aged as he was, now magically impregnated a young maiden. The child of this union was a miracle child who spoke as soon as he was born. But the maiden's parents were horrified and banished her and the child and the old man. The trio sailed off in a canoe and created by Mansrin, the Lord, um, as the old man now became known. On this journey, Mansrin rejuvenated himself by stepping into a fire and flaking off his scaly skin, which changed into valuables. He then sailed around the um, Gilvink Bay, creating islands where, um, where he stopped and peopling them with the ancestors of the present-day Papuans. The Mansrin myth is plainly a creation myth full of symbolic ideas relating to fertility and rebirth. Um, comparative evidence, especially the shedding of the scaly skin, confirms the suspicion that the old man is, in fact, the snake in another guise. Psychoanalytic writers argue that the snake occupies such a prominent part in mythology um, around the world um, because it stands for the penis, another fertility symbol. This may be so, but its symbolic significance is surely more complex than this, and I very much share the author here's um, skepticism about that. Um, it is the rebirth of the hero, whether Mansurin or the snake, that exercises such universal fascination over men's minds. And I think that that is actually a proper reading. It's a symbol of rebirth, isn't it? And I think... Um, Just to be explicitly clear, that a snake sheds its skin. Yes. And that yeah. men see that and are like, <clears throat> wow, what a thing. How amazing. Maybe it will live forever if, you, if, you, if it could do that. It's somehow magical. Mm. And have been used as symbols of eternity. Right. Especially right. Yeah. 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 They're a tongue. Yeah. 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 And infinity. Mm -hmm. yeah. Snake swallowing its own tail. The image of that is very ancient, very primitive thing. Yeah. The snake can rejuvenate itself forever. Uh, all those sorts of things. Self-sufficient. Yeah. yeah. Um, Maximum in, autonomy. In lots yeah. of, um, in lots of uh, ancient or, or primitive thinking, um, Snakes are not necessarily always in a good way defined. Obviously, there's the snake in the in the Genesis, yeah. uh, sort of a, an image of evil. <laughs> um, also, birds quite often there's something innately magical about creatures that can fly. Yeah, uh, and you can sort of understand it, can't you? If you've got no concept of aerodynamics and all that sort of thing, you can see that there's something special about flying creatures. Um, for some, re well, not for some reason, we've just gone through why, but the snake. Is sort of always one of those, sort of always has been one of those. Mm. We were talking about South American and Central American, Mesoamerican peoples and cultures. They also obviously highly revere the snake. Mm. Um, I think it's properties in other animals that we ourselves desire, really, isn't it? Like the ability to mm. fly. It's almost like a, a very cheesy thing to make a song about in, <laughs> in the Western world. And... Uh, yeah, I think these sort of things have been carried through lots of different cultures. It's just desiring abilities that further your own ends at the I, end of the day. I can see why you would uh, associate that with birds. But for instance, many snakes are associated with wisdom. Why would we associate them with wisdom or infinity for that matter? 
We, yeah. we talked about infinity, but mm -hmm. why would it, we associate them with wisdom? And uh, I'm not sure. Well, maybe if they're cunning and yeah. they're considered to be cunning and just uh, a question. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. I thought you were posing an answer there. <laughs> no, I'm I'm, I'm, mm. I'm asking questions. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to play to answer to the to what you said about the explanation. Mm -hmm. uh, I I can't say I know enough about the sort of mythology of the world to okay. to give a compelling answer. Really, there's something also very very alien about snakes as well, though, yeah. isn't there? That they're sort of they're dead eyes. Yeah. And um, obviously, their lack of limbs. There's something sort of special, something set. They're set aside in some way, and of course, not all of them, but many are poisonous. That's sort of there's something sort of magical, almost about a creature that is that is poisonous. Yeah. Particularly um, if you don't understand how poison works. Right. Yeah. Um, it's just something set apart, and it's not a great leap to just think that maybe there's something special about it it, it no like, i don't know if wisdom is cr quite the right word mm. but god or the gods favor it in some way or the yeah. or or the devil in some way has got a special relationship with it yeah it's sort of set apart from the normal creatures of the earth like birds um again with birds the fact that they if if the if the god or gods in some way are in the heavens or in the sky Birds can literally get closer to them. They're literally closer. Yeah. Uh, again, it's just a simple leap of imagination to think, to imbue them with something special because of that. But yeah, the snake, the snake is uh, an interesting image in in sort of the, the primitive mind. Yeah. For all sorts of reasons, I think. I think um, also just from a purely hunting and gathering perspective rather than a spiritual one, it always pays to bear in mind where snakes might be. <laughs> because you know a snake bite could be lethal and so or at least impede your ability to hunt properly if you've been bitten by one even an adder bite in britain can be quite painful and you know in interfere with your ability to survive and so it they clearly had to be paid special attention to and so i think that that's an additional factor that's mm. quite obvious really um but anyway i'm going to carry on and it's says as follows uh, the 19th century missionaries thought that the Mansurin story would make a good introduction of Christianity um, and make it much easier since the concept of resurrection not to mention that of virgin birth and the second coming were already there by 1867 however the first cult organized around the Mansurin legend was reported um, though such myths were widespread in Melanesia and may have sparked occasional movements even in the pre-white era, they took on a new significance in the late 19th century. Once European powers had finished parceling out the Melanesian regions amongst themselves, in many coastal areas, the long history of blackbirding, the seizure of islanders for work on the plantations of Australia and Fiji, built up a reservoir of hostility to Europeans. In other areas, however, the arrival of the whites was accepted, even welcomed for it, meant access to bully beef and cigarettes, shirts and paraffin lamps, whiskey and bicycles. It also meant access to the knowledge behind these material goods. The Europeans brought missions and schools as well as cargo. 
Practically the only teaching the natives received about European life came from the missions, which emphasized the central significance of religion in European society. The Melanesians already believing that man's activities, whether gardening, sailing, or canoeing, or bearing children needed magical assistance. Um, ritual without human effort was not enough, but neither was human effort on its own. This outlook was reinforced by the mission's teachings. The initial enthusiasm for European rule, however, was specifically dispelled. The rapid growth of the plantation economy removed the bulk of the able-bodied men from the villages, leaving women, children, and old men to carry on as best they could. The splendid vision of equality of all Christians be uh, began to seem as a pious deception in the face of the realities of the colour bar, the multiplicity of rival Christian missions, and the open irreligion of many whites. Um, for a long time, the natives accepted the European missions as the means by which the cargo would eventually be made available to them, but they found that acceptance of Christianity did not bring the cargo any nearer. They grew disillusioned. The Aster now began to put, put about that it was not the whites who made the cargo, but the dead ancestors. To people completely ignorant of the fact factory production, this made good sense. White men did not work. They merely wrote secrets on... Uh, secret signs, sorry, on scraps of paper for which they were given shiploads of goods. On the other hand, the Melanesians laboured um, week after week for pitiful wages. Plainly, the goods must be made for Melanesians somewhere, perhaps in the land of the dead. The whites who possessed the secrets of the cargo were intercepting it and keeping it from the hands of the islanders to whom it was really consigned. In the Mandang district of New Guinea, for some 40 years, um, experiences of the mission, the natives um, went in a body one day with a petition demanding that cargo secrets should now be revealed to them for they had been very patient. <laughs> I find that turn of phrase quite funny. You must reveal the secrets of the cargo. We've been here, you've been here for 40 years. We've been very patient. Please tell us the secrets of the cargo. Thank you for watching that clip from my series Contemplations. If you want to sign up to the website for £5 a month, you can access that series, which comes out 1pm every Saturday. Thank you for watching and goodbye.